0: Morning everyone. All right. So <clears throat> so JC Ryle was a uh, 19th century English church leader and he once wrote this sentence. The child of God has two great marks about him. His inner peace and his inner warfare. So the Bible certainly has a lot to say about both of those things. Peace internal peace as well as internal warfare. So just two for instances, two examples. Um, on the peace side, Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then Galatians 5.17 speaks to the inner warfare that Christians experience. For the desires of the flesh, our sinful nature, our selfish, prideful, sinful nature, are against the Spirit. There's like a little internal battle, a little internal conflict. Not little, it's big. Um, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, this week and next week, we're going to consider these two Themes: inner peace, inner warfare. Um, look at them kind of back to back because there is good inner peace and there's actually bad inner peace. We'll look at both of those. There's good inner warfare. There's bad inner warfare. So a soul with no inner peace is not healthy. A soul with no inner warfare actually is not healthy. So that's not contradictory. It's not conflicted. It's the path of wisdom in life following our Redeemer, through this broken, fallen world. Okay, we're going to experience both following Jesus, and we'll toggle back and forth between them all the time. So if your interior, my interior, is always war and no peace, that's not good. If it's always peace and no war, that's also not good. So we'll see that the war actually serves the peace, and the peace serves the war. We also need to make sure we're fighting the right battles pursuing the right kind of peace. So fighting the wrong battle will actually destroy peace. And making peace with with what you ought to fight is a destructive peace or a false peace. So we, for instance, are not at peace with temptation and sin. We're not striking a truce with it, not raising the white flag and just giving up. We're not getting okay with our sin or with the world and its fallenness. So Kevin DeYoung said this, he said, Christians have rest, peace in the gospel, but never rest in their battle against the flesh and the devil. So this morning, beginning of a short two-part series called Vital Signs. Okay, so vital signs in medical context um, usually refer, most basically, to temperature, pulse, respiration, and blood pressure. I know there's other ones that can be important, but those are the basic ones, right? So they provide important Information about a person's physical health. But when it comes to our spiritual health, our spiritual vitality, there are probably at least four ways, there's lots of ways that we could kind of take our vital signs, right? Um, We're just going to look at inner peace and inner warfare in this brief series. But it's going to be an opportunity for us to assess our spiritual health. But more than that, it's not just that, not just an assessment. It's also a way to cultivate spiritual health. So we're going to consider inner peace and how vital that pursuit is, the cultivation of inner peace, for our spiritual health. How do we pursue spiritual health through peace and warfare? So I I recently heard Ray Ortlund um, share this. He was preaching a sermon on Psalm 100 and he I guess he learned this key lesson from Francis Schaeffer. He said my inner world is not what I should obey, but what I should diagnose. Okay? So if you always just obey all the internal compulsions like you're really going to be in trouble. Okay? But it's important to diagnose what's going on so that we can address the issues that underlie those emotions. Okay, so this morning we're going to study Philippians 4, 6 to 9, with kind of a longer introduction, Okay, um, and consider this theme of, of inner peace. So I imagine most of us in here are pretty immediately aware of our need for this. Probably don't have to convince you of the importance of this subject. So when the psalmist says, oh my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? anybody not resonate with that? (laughs) Okay, we quickly resonate with turmoil within. Tyler read Psalm 131. It's a good backdrop to Philippians 4. And he's obviously quieted and composed his soul. There is peace within. That actually might be harder to resonate with. It might be easier for us to resonate with the turmoil, harder to resonate with, oh, so you just weaned your, you know, you just kind of composed your soul like a, like a child that's content on his mother's lap. Like, oh, that would be nice. I'd love to figure out how to do that. So I'm going to quote a couple times from David Paulson. He's got an incredible article on Psalm 131. If you want to read it, I'll send it to you. I've sent it out to people a number of times over the years. So here's a little quote from the beginning of that article. Are you quiet inside? Is Psalm 131 your experience? When your answer is no, it naturally invites follow-up questions. What is the noise going on inside you? Where does it come from? How do you get busy and preoccupied? Why? Do you lose your composure? When do you get worried, irritable, wearied, or hopeless? And how can you regain composure? So inner turmoil is likely a regular experience for most of us. So instead of inner peace being the default setting in our soul, inner chaos or disorder or confusion or turbulence, whatever you want to call it, unrest, those are probably more familiar for many of us. There are so many disturbers of the peace in our lives, aren't there? From within and from without our circumstances. Satan, suffering, and then our own sin, or the sin of others against us. So we can be riddled with fear and worry and sadness and anger and jealousy and bitterness and resentment and disappointment, and there's just turmoil. You might come in this morning feeling like your life is just spiraling out of control. So is there any hope? Is there any help? You feel like, I can't keep up. I can't keep it together. Maybe you just feel like you're on the brink of everything just falling apart. Sometimes we just have so many concerns, and we feel like we're suffocating. We almost need to remind ourselves to breathe. Well, just speaking of breathing, for what this is worth, I'm using this language of inner peace, right? So... I'm not using that with any sort of Buddhist or Hindu associations. Don't think mindfulness meditation or, you know, sitting with your legs crossed and doing yoga poses. Um, Certainly, you know, being flexible is beneficial to your health. And, you know, sitting quietly and paying attention to where the noise comes from in your mind and heart can also be helpful. But the stuff we're considering this morning is way more important, infinitely more important than your flexibility and managing stress levels. Again, as much as those things are important. So peace is not going to come from simply improving our circumstances or learning some breathing techniques. It's actually also not going to come from reducing your responsibilities, even though some of us might need to say no and that would serve our spiritual health. So just like contentment doesn't come from a little more peace doesn't come from a little less it starts and ends with god so that's where we're going to start and where we'll end okay so in the beginning we the human race our first parents adam and eve had perfect peace with god there was perfect shalom in the garden and satan tempted our first parents, with cosmic revolution, war. So he was at war with God, and he wanted us to join him in his traitorous designs. And humans have been at war with God ever since. So Satan wants God dead. He wants to conquer him. And so do our sinful hearts actually, born in rebellion against God. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in our own minds. It's why the Bible calls us natural born enemies of God. So Romans 5.10 says it, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So five points this morning. The first two kind of set up um, our passage in a sense kind of theologically. And then the last three will be walking through Philippians 4 6 to 9. Okay? So, first point is peace with God through Christ. If we're talking about inner peace, we have to start with God and how He alone can give it to us through Christ. So, there is no other person that it's more important to be at peace with than God. You could gain the entire relational world at peace and friends with everyone that you know and meet. Like, everybody loves you. Everybody just always thinks you're awesome. Like, you could have all of that, but if you don't have peace with God, you have traded vaporous, fleeting smiles for the ultimate smile, the eternal smile. Because if you don't have peace with God, then you will face The worst frown and disapproval you could ever imagine. God is the judge. We will face him one day and give an account. That courtroom is infinitely more important than the court of public opinion or the court of your peer group, your peers' opinions. So we are the guilty ones in God's court. We've ruined the relationship. We're the cosmic traitors. We're the subversive ones. We're the enemies of the state as it were. So we deserve condemnation, being cast out into outer darkness. We deserve hell. But, oh, how great is God, the king of this universe, the judge of the universe. He's not only great and perfect in justice and power, he's also great and perfect in mercy and love. So he's actually our greatest problem. Our greatest threat. He is who we ought to fear the most. He is the threat that we ought to worry about the most. Everything else is a flea bite in comparison. So if we can have peace with him, that would change everything. It should change everything. So if we are right with God, at peace with God, reconciled to God, safe with God, now and forever, couldn't we endure all manner of threat and fearful, fear, easy for me to say, fearful circumstance in this life. And that's what we have as Christians through Christ. That's what you do have if you're a Christian. And that's what you can have if you're not yet a Christian. So this is why the Son of God took on flesh and walked in our shoes. So Isaiah in chapter 9, 9, predicts, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus proclaimed and died to accomplish is called the gospel of peace (laughs) in Ephesians 6. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in our place, and rose again to reconcile us to God, to give us peace with God. Totally forgiven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's our greatest threat. Like this is forever threat. This is existential with a capital E, threat. And He, our greatest threat, did everything necessary to remove the threat so that we could have peace existential, eternal safety and security and peace with him. So Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That changes everything. It should change everything. So we shouldn't just learn that You know, on day one as a new Christian and then forget about it as if it has no relevance to the rest of our daily life for the rest of our days. It's the lens through which we should view all of life. It will shrink our stresses and fears and anxieties down to size because our biggest problem, the greatest threat, has already been taken care of. So if God is for us, who can ultimately be against us? So do you see, this is so important to be focused there and centered there and not just assume the gospel but continue to believe it so that the big things are big and the small things are small. Like Otherwise, our troubles and threats and fears get way up here in our face and peace with God just becomes really small and seems powerless and and irrelevant. So that's huge. Peace with God is huge. We can't just assume it Oh, yeah, 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 I know that. Really? If God is for us, who can be against us? But we have to acknowledge that really believing that and living in the safety and security and peace of it is a process. It doesn't come easy. So David in Psalm 131 has learned this. It's not something you just get like a, you know, Inoculation, a shot, and all of a sudden you're good for the rest of your life. It's a process. We forget this all the time. Our worries and anxieties get really, really big, and God is just a little kind of pinprick of life. So stars are a long way away. They're massive, but they just look really small. So God gets distant. Our troubles get really close, and we lose sight. We need recalibrated. So we need to be reminded of this. When we are stressed and anxious, we actually need to fight for inner peace. Okay, so point number two, inner peace in Christ. So the good news is we're not alone in this fight. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. He strengthens our hearts and our hands for this battle. So before Jesus went to the cross, he spent some time with his disciples, right? John 14 to 16, um, preparing them, them for what was coming. He knew they would be troubled. He knew they would be fearful and anxious. So listen to what he said. Just a couple, three verses here. (laughs) A couple, three. I know, that's three verses here. Okay, so John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then finally, John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the same one who commanded the wind and the waves, peace be still, and they obeyed, is the same one who can speak peace to your troubled, turbulent soul. Because in this world, we're going to have trouble. In this world, we will have trouble. But take heart. He's overcome the world, and in him, we may have peace. You're not just in this world. You're also in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you have his peace. You're not just on your own. In this world. So in Christ we have everything we need for his peace to reign in our hearts, to rule and reign in our hearts. So we're going to look at some of the how in Philippians 4, how to fight for peace. Um, but one quick thing before we do here. So I often read like whatever I'm going to be preaching on to our kids or some of the kids, you know, their wide age gap so it looks a little different now than it used to. Um, so last night, with Johnny and Ben, before bed, I'm reading Psalm 131, Philippians 4, 6-9, to 9, and I usually ask them something related to the passage, or, you know, because sometimes they have, like, these great insights. I'm like, oh, great, I'll use that tomorrow. Um, or they ask good questions that I ought to consider. So did that last night, and after reading those two passages, I said, what do you guys tend to worry about, be anxious about? And I probably should have anticipated this, but they didn't have a lot to say. That's not because they don't engage. O mentioned a couple things, but see, it almost like surprised me, struck me like, huh. And I thought of Matthew 6. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You've got a heavenly father who takes care of you. I mean, he, not a bird falls to the ground without him knowing it. Like, he closed the flowers of the field and, you know, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Like, you're of way more value than birds and flowers. So he'll take care of you. You don't have to be anxious. So it's not the only reason, and we're certainly far from perfect parents, but why do kids not worry? because their parents take care of them. So it was kind of like a, okay, I mean, I need to learn from my kids. This is this childlike faith. It's a faith issue, right? Like, I'm going to take care of you. So I think instead of that, we might resonate more so with this guy that Dave Harvey wrote about. I remember reading this a long time ago, and When Sinners Say I Do. It's a book on marriage, but he writes, Maurice talks about faith and trusting God, but his comments seem thin and obligatory, a denial of the true battle within. Sleepless nights tell the real story, awake and staring into darkness. Maurice's imagination runs wild. There he is, unemployed, the house foreclosed, his family begging in the streets. Anybody ever had that daydream? A bead of sweat forms on his brow. Maurice lies alone in the dark like a man with no God. Like a son without a father. So I know the illustration with the boys is not a perfect one-to-one parallel, but there's a lesson there, I think. There's a reason why they're not riddled with anxiety. So peace in our hearts has everything to do with who God is and who he is for us as his children and who he is in us by his spirit in and through Christ. It's a fight of faith. So Philippians 4, 6-9 to 9, now in that light with that kind of frame around it. Tying these verses into the big story. Um, it shows us three ways to fight for inner peace, okay? So to cultivate this quiet mind and heart that isn't fretting and freaking out or constantly tense. So first, we must pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. So if if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to Philippians 4. It's on page 982 in the pew Bible. So first, we must pray. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you ever find your heart kind of almost like scoffing at that in its simplicity? Or maybe if someone's shared it with you, oh, just pray. (laughs) Just take two prayer pills and call me in the morning. So this is coming from someone who's had to fight that tendency. So I'm not slapping you on the wrist. I'm saying I've had to be chastened by these verses. Have you tested God in this? Have you put this promise to the test? There have been so many times when I am anxious and spinning on something and I'm reminded of Philippians 4 and you follow this prescription for the health of your soul and watch the Lord make good on his promise. Anybody? God will be faithful to this promise. And we need it over and over again, so we need to recognize the fact that turmoil and turbulence is going to get kicked up all the time. So if you're really walking by faith, that doesn't mean you're going to just kind of live constantly, you know, placid and, you know, kind of float above the ground. No, no, but you have a weapon here, a way to fight for inner peace. Prayer. So we often just run on the mental treadmill, don't we? You know, like all these scenarios, spinning them out instead of running to God with our cares, as if running on the treadmill is going to fix things. It never does. We shoot ourselves in the foot of the soul by spinning and running. It's like a hamster wheel, you know? All of our worries. Mark Twain once said, I've been through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. We suffer enough without subjecting ourselves to all the additional stress of making up stuff that could go wrong. And listen, you need to see this. Make sure you see this. Philippians 4, 6 to 7 is a gift, not a burden. It's not here to show you how pathetic you are at prayer. (laughs) And, and kind of like stick your nose in it, in your guilt. It's a gift from your Heavenly Father who loves you and knows what's best for you and wants to work for your good and your peace, who is trustworthy, saying, listen, I, I don't want you to be anxious for anything. Would you, would you trust me? This is God saying, give me that big sack of burdens and let me give you my peace. Let me place my peace in your heart, in your mind, standing guard at the door. This doesn't mean we don't need to do anything. It means we pursue what concerns us in faith rather than out of fear, trying to do and fix or overcome it all on our own. So we spin sometimes mentally and then we scramble as we walk through the day. And instead, we can pray and depend, and then we can engage in faith and do it in God's strength, with Him guiding us and with us. So, how often are we anxious because, you know, we feel overwhelmed, we can't get it all done, you know, can't do it without failing or disappointing others, and we're afraid of all these possible things that could happen? Like, and we spin rather than prayer. Like, what? do you want to do it without God's strength? Or do you want to do it with, with his help? How is it that we aren't quick to pray and seek God's help and strength? And I'm preaching to myself. So inner peace is cultivated by prayer. Depending on, this is relational dynamic. We, we already have peace with him, so we can come with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. Cultivated by prayer, inner peace cultivated by prayer. God's peace comes and stands guard over our hearts and minds. And if the peace of Christ is going to rule in our hearts and minds, then the truth of Christ needs to saturate our minds. So, next point, ponder verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So what we think about matters if we're going to live governed by peace, peace of Christ, and not by anxiety and fear. Remember Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So I was listening yesterday it's a podcast I sometimes listen to called The Art of Madness. Um The reason I chose the episode that I did was because I was preaching this sermon, and it was, you know, curious. It's called How to Stress-Proof Your Body and Brain. Okay? So I just wanted to hear, what's this, this expert going to say? Okay? So it's Dr. Mithu Steroni, medical doctor with a Ph.D. in neuro-ophthalmology. And she wrote a book. So she said at one point, the brain is, in essence, a prediction machine. And it's trying to create a model of the universe, create a hypothesis, make a prediction, and then confirm that its prediction is true. So it's constantly trying to predict the universe, the environment around us, and update its model. With every single moment of passing time, the brain encounters change. When it encounters change, it has to update its calibration. But in order to do that efficiently, it needs to know what's about to happen next. And so, uncertainty is one of the most potent triggers of stress. So, does that resonate at all with what, I mean, you wouldn't probably use that language, what you're doing in your mind all the time? Something bad happens, and how do you respond? With this new world that's presented to you, you have to kind of make a model of how to handle it. Or there's a threat looming and how are you going to handle that? And what happens is we actually create an alternate universe in our head. H- have you ever had this happen where you, maybe you're afraid of somebody breaking in? Is this just a uh, just little, little uh, audience participation? Have any of you ever had that fear and then you, like, become Jason Bourne in your mind? <laughs> and you neutralize the threat? Anybody willing to admit? Okay, good. What are you doing? You're creating an alternate universe, one in which you are invincible. You're actually the creator god of a parallel universe. You're becoming, if you want to use it in cinematic terms, the executive producer and star actor in a mental cinematic masterpiece. You create the new world. You script yourself as your own savior, and you deliver yourself. So we have a God complex and a Messiah complex all rolled into one. So physical threat, Jason Bourne. Financial threat, win the lottery, I don't know, like some kind of windfall. Have you ever played these things out? Idle thoughts, daydreaming can sometimes be idle thoughts I D O L. Yes? Anybody? So we can become our own fictional functional savior in our mind to address our fears and anxieties. We want our kingdom to come, if not on earth, At least I'll spin on the hamster wheel and try to create it in the world of my own mind. It's like building Babel between our ears. So our idle thoughts can become a stage for finding a way, apart from God, to overcome our fears and obtain, actually, our fantasies as well. So you could use the Shakespeare line. All of that, all that idle thought stuff, the mental movie or creating your own alternate universe, is a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's nothing. It's not going to help you at all. I know Shakespeare was talking about something else, but like real life. So instead, Jesus says, in this world, I know you're going to have trouble. I'm not candy coating that. I'm not, you know, rose colored glasses, any of that. You're going to have trouble and inner turmoil. But in me you have peace. When you're anxious, come to me and my peace will guard your heart and your mind. So those mental movies, those things we spin out, you can yell, cut! You know that little clacker thing that they use? Bam! Slap the thing down. Cut. Sorry. Jesus is actually the star of this show. That's repentance and faith in real time in your mind. Repent of those idle thoughts and let's get our minds thinking on what is true. You're not Jason Bourne, but Jesus is an omnipotent Savior. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. So I ran across this other article. Um, this, I thought this was so helpful. Another way to say this is stone your inner false prophet. Okay? What do I mean by that? So there's this um, missionary named Amy Medina in Tanzania, and she wrote this blog post. She says, I'm a false prophet. I'm constantly predicting things that don't come true. I think about my husband dying and how I, would possi- how, how I would possibly be able to raise three children by myself. Is this up there? Okay. I think about my children's choices and imagine them on the street or behind bars or in my basement, supposing I have a basement. I think like, you know, into their 20s and 30s and all. Um, I think about waking up to my house on fire. I think about the economy failing, the government failing, the airplane failing, myself failing. I wake up in the middle of the night and think about how miserable I'll feel the next day if I don't get back to sleep. I think about whether I will make the wrong decision, about whether I already did make the wrong decision, about whether I said the wrong thing or wrote the wrong thing or offended him or her, or offended him or hurt her. Contemplating these things isn't necessarily a bad thing. If all I was doing was contemplating, a wise person thinks ahead after all, and some introspection is good for the soul. But I don't just think about these things. I feel the emotion as if they are definitely going to happen or are already happening. My mind and body react as if the terrible thing I imagine has already come true. How many false predictions have I made to myself over my lifetime? See, stone the inner prophet, false prophet. Like as in kill. Sorry, I'm just kind of using an Old Testament um, How many times? Millions? How much adrenaline has been unnecessarily let loose in my body? How many hours of sleep have I lost just by worrying about how many hours of sleep I might lose? How much ibuprofen have I taken for headaches caused by catastrophic situations that never materialized? Did you know? I also ran this across because I know you all need something else to worry about. You know there is like a super volcano under Yellowstone National Park that if it blew, everybody in the United States would die. Seriously. There's people studying this. Just so you can think about that before bed tonight. Um, (laughs) It's like a really low likelihood that it's going to happen. It's like one in 740,000 or something like that. So, (laughs) actually serious. But I'm kind of, okay, you know what I'm doing there. (laughs) All right, so I'm wrong, she says, 99% of the time. And yet, pathetically, I still continue to make predictions. I play the lottery with my worries. Sure, it didn't happen the last 5,000 times, but it just might this time. And what about that 1%? Those very, very few times when the worst does happen. What then? And this is wise. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote, You know, the problem with fears that exist only in our imagination is that since they aren't real, we must face them alone. God's grace isn't available to help us overcome imaginary problems that reside only in our mind, except that he can help us yell cut, right? He will help us to put these imagined fears to death, but it's only in the real world that his power is effective to uphold us in trouble. It's only when he calls us to go through difficult times that his power is present to protect, comfort, and strengthen us. So all of this is something to keep in mind. So you see how pondering the truth in addition to praying is how we cultivate inner peace. And then finally, practice. Sorry about the Ps. I don't usually alliterate, but, you know, it was right there. So Philippians 4.9. What you have learned, Paul writing to this church that he planted, so he's like a spiritual father to them. He's a discipler to them, right? So if they're going to follow Jesus, what does it look like? Well, I showed you. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see the bookends? 4 7, pray, and the peace that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind. 4 9, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Don't you want to live between those bookends? Like, isn't that the place to live? So true inner peace starts and ends with God. We start with the gospel. There's no other way to have peace with God except through the work of Christ on the cross and trusting that. It's the only way we can be reconciled to God. We don't find inner peace by our performance. I think sometimes we operate that way. We feel better about ourselves, that God may be happier with us or likes us more on our good days, and then we feel more nervous on our bad days. No, no. It is finished. He paid for all of our sin. We're reconciled to him by grace through faith. We're his kids. He loves us. So we don't find inner peace by performance. We find it by grace. But that doesn't mean our choices don't matter. If we are not being honest with ourselves, not honest with God, not honest with others, if we're drifting from following Jesus and we're hiding our sin and shrinking back from things in unbelief, then we're rebelling against God. We're coddling our sin. And we're going to be shifty and, and nervous and hiding and afraid to be exposed. You see? So in the short run, that can steal our peace with God relationally. It gets in the way of the God of peace being with us because We're wandering. We're running and hiding. We're stiff-arming the Spirit. So Paul is basically saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul, for crying out loud, did not live some, you know, like charmed life wrapped in bubble wrap. He got beat up and had threats, you know, left, right, and center and trouble, turmoil inside. He knew it. He was buffeted. He suffered immensely. And he's saying, this is the path. This is how we cultivate this inner peace. So if you actually got to meet someone who is strikingly at peace and composed in the midst of their fair share of troubles in this crazy world, this stressed out, you know, messed up, anxious world, wouldn't you want to know what their secret was? Psalm 131 is a help. That's what it is. It's David showing us, and Paul is saying, follow me. Because this isn't magic. This is learned. It's discipled into us. So I'll close here with David Palson. A couple quotes from that same article. And then we're going to sing a couple songs before we are done. So David Palson on Psalm 131 again, but it fits here. Get a clear picture of what this is not. It does not portray blissful, unruffled detachment, a meditative state of higher consciousness. It's not stoic indifference, becoming philosophical about life. It's not about having an easygoing personality or having low expectations so you're easy to please. It's not retreat from the troubles of life and the commotion of other people. It's not retirement to a life of ease and wealth. The quiet of having nothing to do and no worries. It's not the pleasant fatigue that follows a hard day's work or a hard workout. It's not the quieting of inner noise that a glass of wine or a daily dose of Prozac produces. After all, David and Jesus and Paul were kingdom builders in real life, real time. They expected and achieved huge things in the midst of commotion and trouble. They experienced pressure, joy, heartache, outrage, affection, courage. So Psalm 131's inner quiet comes in the midst of actions, relationships, and problems. The composure is learned, and it is learned in relationship. Such purposeful quiet is achieved, not spontaneous. It is conscious, alert, and chosen. It is a form of self-mastery by the grace of God. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. And it happens in living relationship with someone else. You are discipled. Into such composure. And then he he says this: we learn it. Knowing and following Jesus. On that path, we learn this. He never climbed the ladders to nowhere. He's the iconoclast, the ladder toppler, the idol breaker, the lie piercer, the the pride smasher, the one that yells cut over our, you know, mental masterpieces, idle thoughts. He gives life, makes peace, gives joy seek Jesus, carrying your sins in your hands, he will give you his peace, quieted but not placid, composed but not detached. His composure is a communicable attribute. His peace, his peace he wants to give to us. Something he willingly teaches and gives away. So, Isn't it good news that the Prince of Peace is so willing and able to give us his peace to guard our hearts and our minds in him? In this world, we will have trouble. But in Christ, we can have composure and peace. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing two songs as we finish. Oh God, I pray that we wouldn't walk out of here with the primary thought what a failure I am at this. I also pray that we wouldn't hold any of this out at arm's length as if it's disconnected to the difficulty of life in this fallen world. I pray that we would walk out with the primary thought of how good you are to promise us this kind of peace and to lay out a pathway that's clear and understandable for how to pursue it And I pray, would you speak peace over troubled hearts and minds this morning, right now? And would you motivate us and help us to pursue peace by your appointed means as we head into this week? I ask it in the name of our Prince of Peace. Amen.